Many of you know that I spent a large part of the sabbatical, about 10 weeks, a little more, on the commands of Jesus, writing a book that will be called What Jesus Demands from the World. I want to thank you for that amazing privilege to spend 10 weeks, about 11 hours a day, doing nothing but thinking about what Jesus commanded. One of the things that came clear in those meditations was that the commands of Jesus only make sense and only have their proper force in the context of what Jesus did and who he was and what he thought about the nature of my heart and how it relates to God. You can't take a commandment of Jesus like love your enemies or let your yes be yes and don't take an oath or <clears throat> pray that you may not enter into temptation or lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You can't take a command of Jesus and properly use it, properly understand it without asking several larger questions like, what difference does it make that the eternal, incarnate, fully divine Son of God spoke these words? Or second, what difference does it make that the main reason he came was not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and to purchase forgiveness for all who believe in him? What difference does that make in the way you handle the commands of Jesus? Or... The question, what about our rebellion? What about the fact that we are so evil, Jesus says we have to be born again in order to even see the kingdom of God? Does it make a difference that that's true when you handle the commands of, of Jesus? Or another way to say it would be that the cross at the end of the Gospels casts a long shadow over the entire Gospels. Every verse in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to be read in view of the cross, under the shadow of the cross. So, children, let me give you a question to ask Mommy and Daddy at lunch today, okay? Now, first I have to make a statement, and then we'll uh, have the question. My statement is, you should all read the Gospels backwards. Now, children, when you got home and you have lunch today, you look at mommy or daddy and say, why did Pastor John say we should read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John backward? Why did he say that? Okay? And parents, you will be ready to answer them. Right? And I'll give you the answer so that you'll be ready. Sharp children will remember the answer, but it may be perplexing that you're supposed to read the Gospels backward. So, parents, here's what you, should, what you should say to them. Tell them, Pastor John meant that when you start reading at the beginning of the Gospels, you should already know what's at the end of the Gospel, namely that Christ died for our sins, that he rose as the Lord of the universe, and every verse from the beginning to the end should be read in light 
of the fact that he died for our sins. He rose today. He's alive. He's ruling. That's the way the verses have to be read. Now, I'm not making that up. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tip us off in their own way that that's the case. Matthew chapter 1. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This Jesus, with all these commandments and all this ethical talk, is coming to save sinners. Chapter 1. Mark is the most remarkable example. It's only 16 chapters Eight of them deal with the last week of his life. That's an odd biography. Half the biography on the last week. Get the point? The point is, he came for that. He came for that. Everything he did, everything he said is in the light of that. He died. He rose. He did something majestic at the end of his life. Luke chapter 1. Fear not. This is an angel talking. For behold... I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a, tell me, a Savior. Chapter 1. Or is it chapter 2? It is chapter 2. Yes. Chapter 2, 1, to Chapter 2, 10. A Savior is to be born. And here he is. This little baby is not just here to teach and give commands. He's here to be a Savior. And John, chapter 1. John the Baptist sees Jesus and God, he's a prophet, God grants him to see and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, chapter 1, chapter 2 of every one of the Gospels, Mark with his structure is telling us these Gospels are to be read backward. You know the end. If you try to interpret the the teachings, the commands of Jesus without having blood all over them, without having the shadow of the cross, you won't get it right. The Gospels are to be read backward. They are not little tips. These commandments, they're not little tips about how to have a better family, how to feel better about yourself, how to, how to have a prosperous business. It makes me want to throw up when I... When I hear secular business people talking about the principles of Jesus in their business, they need to be saved. They need to repent and get on their faces. Jesus didn't come to make your business work. He came to rescue you from hell and to give you everlasting pleasure in his presence. The commands of Jesus are descriptions of the way New human beings behave. Who have been born again. Who therefore have been enabled supernaturally to see the glory of Jesus. Who have recognized the incredible outrage of their sin. Who have ceased to trust in anything about themselves. And have cast themselves entirely on Jesus for mercy, for righteousness, for forgiveness. And that's where we are now at Luke 18, 9. So if you have a Bible, 
I do hope you'll open it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus is looking into the eyes of a man who didn't get it. He, he saw that, and he didn't get it. He didn't know how to be justified. He didn't realize that everything written in the Old Testament, the Pharisees knew it backwards and forwards, and he's one of them. He didn't realize that everything written in the Old Testament was written to lead to a redeemer. It's leading to a savior. It's leading to the righteous one. It's leading to a substitute. He didn't get it. So what was his mistake? His mistake was that he tried to trust in his own righteousness. Let's read it together. He told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the situation. That's Luke setting it up. And then Jesus talks. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. That's the model religious person. The other tax collector, you know who they are. They're the, the quizlings, the traitors, the, the ones who compromise with Rome and collect the taxes and cheat and fraud. And... The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. Oh, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I'll tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now you can tell by the climax of verse 14 what this text is about. This text is about how to be justified. You see that in verse 14? Make no mistake. This man, not the other man. There is a way to do it and a way not to do it. This man went down to his house justified. Now, the story is being told before Jesus died. But you read the Gospels backward. Jesus knows where he's going for these people. He's going to the cross He's completing his obedience. He's rising from the dead. And they expect us now to see the essence of what's here and then complete it with the end of the story. What's the problem? That's what we have to get clear. What's the problem? Verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, here's what you must not do, Bethlehem. If, if you should care about anything this morning, it should be, Oh God, oh God, don't let me do that. 
Because that's what this parable is about. It's about what becomes of a man who does that, trusts in himself that he's righteous. That's what this is about. Don't do that. Now, to, to not do that, you've got to know what that is. And there's a lot of people who don't understand what's being condemned here, what's being rejected here. So I want to really work on this with you because everything hangs on this. Your life hangs on this. Your eternity hangs on whether you trust in yourself that you are righteous. If you do, you will go to hell. And if you don't, but you do what the publican did, then you will go to heaven justified. So everything hangs on getting this right. So please stay with me for a few minutes. Three things I want to say about this Pharisee and what it means that he trusted in himself that he was righteous. Number one, his righteousness was moral. Number two, his righteousness was religious. And number three, his righteousness, he believed, was the gift of God's grace. Verses 10 and 11, let's first see number one. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's the one who trusts in himself that he's righteous, and the other a tax collector. He had a terrible reputation of sin. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he says three things that he's not extortioner. That means a robber. He doesn't cheat and steal. Second, unjust. He's not unjust. He's just in all of his dealings, meticulously upright. Third, adulterers. This man is faithful to his wife. I believe him. No reason not to. So, notice the morality of his righteousness. The relationships with other people are moral. This is not just ceremonial stuff. This is moral righteousness. Second point, his, his righteousness is religious. It is ceremonial. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, those two, those two statements don't have so much to do with how you relate to other people, whether you steal from them or cheat on them in sexuality, or treat them unjustly. That has to do with kind of the vertical, pious dimension of life, the religious dimension of life. I fast, and I tithe. This man is morally upright and religiously devout. That's the way he's presented. That's the way we're supposed to take him. Now, here's the third observation. His righteousness, he says, is a gift from God. This morality and this piety is a gift from God, and he thanks him for it. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, I thank you, I thank you. You're the one who did this. You're the one who helped me be moral. You're the one who helped me be devout. You've given me this inclination, and I Thank you 
for working in me this moral, religious righteousness. It is from you. And I thank you for it. He is not, to use the words of theologians, he is not a Pelagian. Most of you don't have a clue what that means. A Pelagian, called after Mr. Pelagius, 1,500 years ago, is a person who believes that without any help from God, our wills are capable of producing the righteousness we need to have. That's Pelagianism. This man is not a Pelagian. Pelagianism is wicked. This man's not a Pelagian. He says, I thank God. God did this in me. We don't even know if this man is a semi-Pelagian. Now, a semi-Pelagian is a person who needs help. They believe they need help. I need God. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and I've got to have divine jump start. I've got to get divine help. But a semi-Pelagian believes that the human will remains enough free that it can smash God's intention down and ultimately rule his life. We're, we're not Pelagians or semi-Pelagians at Bethlehem. We believe it takes God all the way to get us saved. We give all the credit to God. He subdues John Piper's will and makes me willing to believe. And if I try to resist him, he knocks down my resistance and keeps me for himself. Praise God. That's the only reason I wake up a Christian in the morning is because God is on my side working to keep me believing. This man may be that way. Doesn't say it's not the intention of Jesus to draw attention to it. The problem here is not whether this man believes he produced his righteousness or God produced his righteousness. He says God produced it. This man's problem is very simple. He trusts in God produced righteousness as what will commend him for justification. That's clear. This man trusts in himself that he is righteous. Let's make sure we get clear what that sentence means. He trusts in himself that he is righteous. Does not mean he trusts in his ability to make him righteous. That's not what it's saying. He's already said, I thank you, God, you have produced righteousness in me. When it says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, Luke did not mean he's telling this parable about legalists. This is not about legalists. A legalist is a person who's trying to earn his salvation by thinking he can produce it. And he earns his way to heaven by impressing God with his moral ability. This man has already forsaken that. He said, God, you worked it in me. I thank you for my moral righteousness. I thank you for my religious righteousness. I thank you for my badge. And he's going to hell. He may believe entirely in the sovereignty of God, for all we know. He may say, not I, but the grace of God in me has worked this righteousness. 
I thank you, God, that I, I have a righteousness that's from you. Oh, how I thank you that I have a righteousness in me. His mistake was not in taking credit for his righteousness. His mistake was that once God had given it to him, he trusted in it as what would be the basis of his justification. He's not a legalist. Do you see why I would spend the last part of my sabbatical on this? Which is what I did. I spent 10 weeks on Jesus' commands. This is one of the paragraphs that was huge for me. And then I devoted myself to trying to understand why there are so many Christian teachers today who are turning away from the historic biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone and taking the stand that this man takes. That's what I want to know. I wanted to understand what is going on in people I know in very influential New Testament and Old Testament and systematic theologians, what is going on that the most precious doctrine in the Bible is being forsaken for this Pharisaic position? So I spent weeks reading these people. Wrote a 25,000 words trying to understand why they would surrender this. Why? Why? And I don't want you to be among that number. I don't want this church to make that mistake. I want this church to be such a clear, bright beacon in the Twin Cities for how to be right with God, though you have sinned your life away. How to be right with God. And it isn't the way the Pharisee did it. What did the publican do right? What did he do right? Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That means declared righteous, just, accepted in the court of heaven. God counted him righteous, just, rather than the other. What did he do? Here's the essence. And then we have to fill it up with the end of the story. You only have the essence here. You only have the, the dynamic of the relation with God. The end of the story is yet to, to happen. The righteousness has not been completed in the obedience. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Our obedience was not yet completed by the Lord Jesus. So you can't talk about all the details here. You can only talk about this essential dynamic. The rest of it has to be finished at the end, a few chapters later. 
And what he says is, what this man did right was, he totally looked away from himself. And anything in him, anything in him, anything in him, totally, 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 totally away from himself to God's mercy, which is now in Christ, our righteousness. Faith is not looked to here. Faith is the looking away. You don't look to your faith as the ground of your righteousness. Faith is the not looking at faith. Faith is not looking at faith. If you're looking at your faith, you're not believing. Faith is looking away. Faith is a glorious gift of self-forgetfulness and seeing the one righteousness that will count in the court of heaven and saying, mercy, mercy, may I have it as a sinner. And you will have it. You will have it. So that's what he did differently from the Pharisee. Be careful, lest you say, of course he looked away from himself. He didn't have any. But I do. God has been merciful to me. I grew up in a Christian home. He's worked in me. I haven't committed adultery. I've been spared all kinds of things. I do have a righteousness. I'm a moral person. And you know what? You're right. And you should thank God for it. Sing about it. But don't, please, don't walk into the court of heaven and put that on the table as the ground of your acceptance with God. You have been able to do that Because he already accepted you because of Christ alone. Sanctification, this progressive growth in righteousness, which all of you are manifesting who have any saving faith at all, is built on justification. It's built on a rock solid confidence that I have been accepted, forgiven, declared righteous in the court of heaven once for all. And now my Christ, who is my righteousness, is producing in me on the basis of that standing a righteousness that is growing. And I am thankful for it. I will say I thank you, God, that I have not cheated on Noel. I will say that. And I'm thankful for it. I'm deeply thankful that my wayward heart has not been allowed by the sovereign God to be addicted to pornography. I could list moralities that I am very thankful that I have as a pastor. We have qualifications for elders here. And those elders, when they pass, should be flat on their faces saying, I thank you, God, that there's enough in me by your grace that the church recognizes me as fit to be an elder. We, we have to talk that way. But woe to us. If we do what Luke says this Pharisee did, he trusted in himself that he was 
righteous. That was the basis and the foundation of his justification. He laid it before God, not because he thought he could earn anything. God had worked that in him, and he was laying it out there as the basis. That's the very word that some of these teachers use today who have departed from the glorious biblical truth of justification by faith alone on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Dan quoted one of the most precious verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin in order that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I spent days on that verse reading articles that are tearing it to shreds and abandoning what 1,500 years has said it meant in order to warrant putting our God wrought obedience where Christ's righteousness belongs. So my closing plea is this, Bethlehem, let us give Christ all of his glory, not half of his glory. This is my biggest concern. When I'm talking with young people that are forsaking this doctrine, the way the conversation usually ends after all of our exegetical arguments is I look him, I looked a guy in the eye in Cambridge, and with tears pled, I said, please, please, just consider that when you go this way, you will rob the king of half of his glory. Because one of the glories that our Lord Jesus means to get for himself and his father means for him to have is that he be both our objective external righteousness, which is counted to be ours by faith alone, and the one who creatively works righteousness within us, not either or. If you split this off and say, that's not in the Bible, we don't need that, he is a sanctifier working in us righteousness. When we present ourselves before God, we will not take credit, we will simply lay Works we have done and thoughts we have had and affections we have had, which God worked in us. And we'll lay that before God and say, God, that is, I pray now, the basis on which you will vindicate me in this court. If you do that, I want to give you four words for you in verse 14. Let's go to verse 14. I tell you. This man, the tax collector, who simply looked away from himself to God's mercy, went down to his house justified. And here come four words that should scare the hell out of you. Rather than the other. He didn't have to say that. He could have left it open-ended. He didn't have to comment about what becomes of this Pharisee. This moral, religiously pious, God-exalting, 
trust her in his righteousness. He didn't have to comment that he was going to hell, but he did. He said, the tax collector went down to his house justified. One, rather, two, then, three, the, four, other. So here's my terrifying warning. If you forsake Christ as your everything before God as the basis of justification, if you look away from Christ's everything to what he has worked in you as the basis of your justification, that applies to you. I don't know how else to take this text. I don't want to say that. I know people like this. I don't want to say that. I am bound to say it. It's there rather than the other. If you are a person in whom God has worked righteousness by his sovereign free grace and you really, and I want to say this carefully because I don't think some of these people really believe it. If you really believe it, if you really believe the righteousness that God is working in me will be the basis on which in God's court I am counted righteous, justified, accepted. You will go to hell. I don't know how else to take the words rather than the other. He wasn't justified. And if you're not justified, tell me the opposite of justified in a courtroom. Condemned, guilty, condemned, condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in, in, in Christ. Why? He's everything for us. You got it? Can we be this? Can we stand on this? Can we celebrate this? Can this animate our children's discipleship, our youth ministry? Teenagers, you get this? Can you, can you talk about this tomorrow to your friends? Can you talk about this parable now and tell them okay, how good you are? And I don't care whether you've worked it or God's worked it. If you offer that to God as your basis of being declared righteous, it will work. Jesus came to do that for us. Get glory for your Jesus by the way you believe and the way you share the gospel. I pray that as we move to three campuses and 800 of you volunteer for children's and youth ministry and we worship together with all of our heart that this truth will be the rock under your life. Some of you right now are, are facing unbelievable challenges in your life. Physically, very threatened. Marriages, tottering. Work seems to be coming apart at the seams. Children, flipping out, doing things that just break your heart. I pray, oh God, let it happen, that underneath the, the storms, as the winds beat against you, this doctrine will be like a rock for you.
just be a sweet, deep, mighty, powerful place to stand. Christ is my all. Christ is my righteousness. And you'll know what you mean. You won't be resting. You won't do verse 9. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous because God had made them righteous. That is not what you're going to say. You're going to say, Jesus, no matter what you work in me, I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you and not what you work in me as the ground of my acceptance with your father. And oh, what a sweet peace will come into your life. God wants you to enjoy the assurance of your salvation. He wants you to have a place to stand so that you can't be blown over. Blessed is the man. This is the fighter verse, right? You know this. Uh, say this with me, and then I'll keep going. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, I'm going to keep going because I got a point I'm closing with. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In everything he does, he prospers. When you sink your roots down into Christ, you're like a tree. It's what we want our children and our young people to be. A tree. So that when the winds beat, the roots are down there in Romans and Galatians and Luke 18, 9 to 14. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for your mercy. And I just want to do the, the tax collector thing for imperfect pastor John Piper. God, would you just be merciful to me and this church? You have worked some things in us. And I thank you for them. But Lord, we don't make this mistake that the Pharisee made. Please, don't let us make it. We do not look to what you've made us or worked in us to commend us or vindicate us for justification in this courtroom. Father, if there's any here for whom this has been brand new, would you open their eyes to see it and say, I can't believe it. If that were true, that would be the best news in all the world, which it is. So God, save sinners, strengthen saints, and get all the glory for your son. Both the righteousness that he is for us and the righteousness that he works in us. And the second built on the first. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.